Hi everybody, my name is Lindsay with Tea Time with Linz, a podcast about creatives. This week I am so excited that we have Benjamin Byron Davis on the show. Acting, coach, actor, extraordinaire, voiceover artist, motion capture, writer, director. He has literally done everything. He is amazing. So thank you, Ben, so much for coming onto the show. Before we get started, just some thank yous from Poe the Passenger for the intro music. You can follow them on social media at Poe the Passenger on Twitter and Instagram. And they have a new song called Heartstrings Out that you can download on Spotify and iTunes and all that jazz. And it is amazing. So check that out. The show is now on Patreon. So if you want to be a patron, um, go to Tea Time of Linz on the patreon.com website. There are several perks, tiers, all that sort of jazz, um, including episodes that are due out Tuesday. You can get them on Monday. All right. So without further ado, we will do the interview with Benjamin Byron Davis and you can follow him at Bing Ben Davis on Instagram and at Toto on Twitter. I hope you guys find this interview as inspiring as I did Um, and once again thank you Ben for coming on. Benjamin Byron Davis everybody. I'm delighted to be here. Well thanks Ben. But I just wanted to start from the beginning because you're from you're not from Newton you're from a town next to Newton right? No I'm from Newton. Are you all from? Uh, I'm from a village in Newton called Wadden. That's it. Because I remember when I was up in Newton, you told me to go visit your parents and we just didn't have time. And I was like, I just remembered that town. It wasn't far away, but I think because we didn't have a car either, I was just like, I don't know how to get there. Now, Wadden is, 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 you know, it's all these tiny villages. I think Wadden was founded in 16 something, but it's uh, Newton is, is, you know, about five miles west of Boston, and it's made up of Wabin and Newton Center and Newton Highlands and Newtonville and West Newton. And, uh, but it's uh, it was a great place to grow up. Uh, oh, and, yeah. Yeah, when we were there, we were there for a week, and it was really, it's a gorgeous town. And I yeah. just I just wonder, because like, it seems kind of like a smallish town, kind of like where I'm from. So I'm just curious, like, what, how did you get the acting bug? Like, what... <laughs> Do you remember like the first moment when you were like, "Oh my god"? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, I think it's multifaceted, but because, like, I as a child, it was I was always centered around um, movies, and uh, and so, so so like one of my first heroes was a makeup artist, Rick Baker, who did the. You know, he's, he's a legend, now retired, but an amazing makeup artist. But I also, you know, I had friends that we made movies with, but, but, but uh, you know, I dreamt maybe of being a stuntman. But acting became the central, the central focus, I think, uh, when I was nine, when I, my, my parents always took me to, they took all of us to the theater, which there's a wonderful theater scene in Boston. And I was, at nine, I was taken to the uh the national tour of Sweeney Todd with yeah. George Hearn and Angela Lansbury and a very young Victor Garber. And, uh, and I fell in love with Sweeney Todd and I, we got the album and took it home and I memorized every song and, and 
you know, was starting to slit kids' throats at school with red markers. And, uh, <laughs> <laughs> you know, so I got very obsessed with, with Sweeney. That really narrowed my focus. And so I started taking classes at Boston Children's Theater. And, and then I got to junior high and, and <laughs> I still remember, um, the, the way that they'd figure out how to cast the shows, you know, I, I did two shows in junior high. One was Brigadoon and the second one was Fiddler on the Roof and, and Brigadoon. Uh, I, I was, I was a featured extra because I was the only kid big enough to carry the dead body of one of the characters. So that, they, <laughs> it was the first time my size was a real advantage in, in casting. Um, but, uh, but I still remember the uh they teach you all like the opening number and then one of the teachers would walk around so everybody would be singing and he he announced to the room maybe you know 15 of us 20 of us let's sing this and i'm going to walk around and as you're singing if i tap you on the back you're not to sing oh <laughs> <laughs> and i got i got tapped on the back and that kind of that so then it was so then I kept getting, I get small parts and, and I, and I got to, I went to a private high school with a great theater program and I couldn't get, I couldn't get on stage. They wouldn't put me on stage. So I, I started doing, I did a lot of technical theater, um, and was just sort of a stymied actor. But then in, uh, uh senior year, I guess they sort of came around and I, I got to, I was the lead in, in all the plays that year. I played Malvolio in Twelfth Night and, a Peter Schaefer play, a fun Schaefer play, and then and then and then of all things, I got to be Tevye in, in Fiddler, and that was so. At that point, I I I knew I loved it. I had some degree of discipline about it, and and I knew I was not terrible at it. And uh, but I didn't have. I wasn't to go to acting school, which is what I really wanted to do. Um, and I was not, you know, I was fortunate enough that, that uh, I had a father who was going to pay my freight to college, which is, you know, when you're, when you're 17, you don't understand how incredibly privileged that is until oh, you uh, get out into the real world and you're like, oh, not everybody had my dad? Wow, okay. <laughs> so, yeah, this is, um, but he wanted me to go get a degree. And so I went to University of Chicago and, and, I got into University of Chicago and I went there and really was miserable except for the work I was doing in theater and ultimately uh, dropped out at, of your Chicago in my junior year and you know which was went over wonderfully with my father who said what are you going to do <laughs> and I said I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go get into NYU and the audition was you know I think the next month and I went and I auditioned and I got into NYU and I went I got my BFA uh, there, and then that was kind of, I mean, the die was cast. Yeah, like, that is a huge score. Like, that is probably, what, like, top five for acting and performing and stuff out here? Is that right? I think, so. I mean, I think so. I, it's hard to know because, you know, when I, certainly when I went there, which was 93, it was absolutely, I mean, you, you had Tisch School of the Arts. Uh, for undergrad programs, it was Tisch and ACT, and Wesleyan actually had a really renowned program and a few others. And then, and then for graduate degrees, it was Juilliard, Yale, and NYU. Mm -hmm. um, 
and that was kind of the, the terrain. How it stands now, I'm less certain. I mean, I don't really know these days. Yeah, well, it's, it's definitely heard, like, we know that school back in England. And it's definitely like when you say Tish, you're just like, oh, shit. Like, that's definitely a very prestigious school. And, and, you, and you, yet... Oh, sorry, you graduated with honors from that school. I did, I graduated, yes, oh. yes. A BFA, a BFA with honors, and uh, there was some other accolade. Um, I forget. I, I, my mother always nags me about not uh, claiming enough uh, of my resume. <laughs> <laughs> there was some other. I had a performance excellence award as well on graduation. So, oh my gosh! And George Wolf gave me a pen, so that was <laughs> so really a red letter day. <laughs> My goodness. So then um, you performed a bunch of solo shows, is this correct? Two yes. Solo shows. And one in New York, one in LA. So yeah. was that right after Tish or? I had, I, I have had moments of extraordinary uh, luck in my life. Um, and, um, and one such moment was the, the, my training at, at NYU in the undergrad department, you were in um, one of, I don't know how many there are now, but at the time I was there, you could be in Circle in the Square, you could be in the Experimental Theater Wing, you could be in the CAP 21, which was the musical theater program, or you could be, um, oh, you could be in Strasbourg, you could be in Adler, and like, or you could be in Playwrights Horizons Theater School, which is where I was very glad to have found myself. And mm-hmm. um, because I was a transfer student, my time at NYU, I was really like I was in conservatory because I didn't have any academic requirements that hadn't already been fulfilled. And I was, and I wanted to move quickly. <laughs> so both summers, or two of the summers that I was there, I got eight credits. Um, anyway, the, the, the last summer that I was there, uh, to get eight credits, I was going to go to the playwright summer program, and it was being run by Travis Preston, who's now the the who's an extraordinarily accomplished theater director um, out of Yale Rep, and he is currently the uh, uh, I believe the dean of uh, Cal Arts um, out here. And uh, but Travis was a, a real ally and friend to me, and I showed up, Lindsay, for. Uh, the first day of the summer program, and there were three actors, me and two other actors, at, and uh, I, we went into the office of playwrights, and Travis said, "This we don't have enough actors here to run the program, so uh, you guys are going to be able to choose from what the other summer options are. And so I was kind of crestfallen, and everybody got up to leave, and Travis said, Ben, would you hang around for a second? And what ended up happening was for eight weeks, I had 15 hours a week with Travis Preston. I had five hours a week with a, a yoga instructor. I had five hours a week with the voice and speech coach. And I basically had, and in that time, uh, Travis was trying to develop a solo show for me to perform. And, and uh, I ended up telling him the story of how I came to drop out of University of Chicago. And he's like, oh, that's the story we should tell. So we spent eight weeks developing that solo show, which was called In Absentia. Um, and then I performed that in 95. Upon graduation, I performed it in New York. And ultimately, 
four years later when I came out to LA, I performed that here, and that was really the, the first thing that sort of got me any kind of traction in Los Angeles was that show that was essentially, I mean, it was my work, but it was the, the, the guidance and, and, and generosity of, of uh, Helen Cook, who was the director of Playwrights Horizons, and Steve Sparrigan, who was my, my voice coach, and then principally Travis Preston, who uh, had the idea, the audacious idea to, to, to have the resources of Playwrights Horizons focused just on me for eight weeks was pretty, pretty remarkable. That is impressive. And so you did that whole, the whole uh, one man show in eight weeks. Yeah, I mean, yes, it was. You know, it was a true story. So, yeah. um, but but we did. He recorded me. I I'd been writing my whole life as well, and and and, and this was some, sort of something that I had processed, and and it centered around a bad uh, drug experience where I thought that I had died and, and what that had sort of done for me um, in terms of clarifying priorities in my life. Um, and it was, uh, you know, it was a good place to start. And, and I ended up, I did a second one after I came to LA and that's a whole other story in and of itself. But the, the process of writing, particularly autobiographical, um, stories uh, and then performing them. One is, you know, you're really putting yourself out there. Uh, but the other is it's really kind of a very, very solitary experience. You're not, it, it, I, I'm much fonder of being part of an ensemble than I am of sort of being uh, standing alone, if, if that makes any sense. Yeah. It's really interesting though, because just listening to you say that, like I'm actually in the midst of writing my one woman show right now because I've always just wanted to do one and I'm like fuck it this is the time just to start putting my head down and getting it done um so it's just interesting hearing what you had to say because it's inspiring you know I'm just like oh yeah and if I had if I didn't have my toddler I probably would have written my thing in eight weeks <laughs> right now I have like two hours a day and sometimes I'm napping so well, the thing, I mean, I think, I think, I think the, the thing is you, 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 knowing what it is that you mean to say, yeah. uh, or the question that it is that you mean to ask, like both the, my first show centered around me, uh, being stuck and wanting to get unstuck. And that was, and it centered around that. And Travis gave me a process that I've used, I've used ever since, which is, it's a pretty canny process, which is, I want you to record this story. Uh, I want to, I want you to record yourself telling this story um, to twice and I want you to record it to somebody that you um, admire that you haven't told the story to before record that and then I want you to record yourself telling the story to somebody that you're desperate to uh, uh, go to bed with uh, <laughs> <laughs> and I was like well so I did both of those things and I asked him on the other side of it, why, why that? And he said, because the, when you're telling the story to the person that you admire, you're going to be humble. And when you're telling the story to the person that you want to go to bed <laughs> with, you're going to make yourself a badass. And so have both of those versions available. And it became very important in terms of being able to sort of reference it. And, um, and so from there, uh, it, it was just, I mean, it, I'm still quite proud of the script, particularly that first script. It's a it's it, it's a very solid script, I think. And the 
I, I think it reads quite differently today than it did then. I mean, I, I intersect, I intersected with the police in Chicago in a way that was absolutely only the way that a, 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 a white kid could, you know, it's a very different experience. And, and I, I certainly was not uh, sensitive in my thinking about what I had endured to any of, of those realities. And I think in today's world, you can't ignore those things. Um, but, uh, the other thing was, you know, that was about, that was a story about me being in a place I didn't want to be and the place that I wanted to be was being fulfilled creatively. So the act of actually seeing me on stage doing, performing that show was kind of, that was kind of like the point of the show was, this is what I fought to have. I hear Thomas, I think. That's my dog, sorry. No. <laughs> It's a circus in this house. There's two dogs. There's a toddler. There's a husband. There's a baby on the way. It's a fucking mental narcotic house. Uh, but my second show that I did was was about um, being in California and, and being sort of buffeted about by the industry and ultimately getting involved in a project that me and the other actress involved got blackmailed into going to Maui uh, where the creative uh he's called the big shot in the show but where the creative uh, engine told us all that he was in all seriousness the messiah mm -hmm. um and that show was good travis my old mentor did not like it as much as in absentia and i, and I think he was right about that um it has its moments and i've got friends and, and collaborators who are still quite fond of it but for me, it kind of was sort of, it didn't have the resonance of the first show because the first show was about me being trapped and wanting to be in a different place. And the different place I wanted to be was on stage performing. And the second one was about me sort of seeing the darkest corners of what Hollywood can do to the people around you, but also to you yourself and sort of mm -hmm. what you're willing to sacrifice in the name of advancement. And it sort of felt felt hollow because if if I'd learned my lesson, I wouldn't be, you know, in Hollywood anymore. <laughs> I'd, yeah. I'd, I'd have gone, you know, to teach uh, kindergarten someplace and be done with it. <laughs> uh, so, but that was, and it was also kind of like so. Now, now I'm in this kind of mode with those two uh, uh, creative enterprises of having to wait for some dramatic, disastrous, dangerous. Event. Boulevard, yeah, the Sunset Boulevard, indeed. <laughs> um, but I, but I was, I didn't want to wait for another, uh, you know, near-death experience to have to write another show. So I kind of at that point, <laughs> at that point, I sort of pivoted. And there's an artist named Joe Hernandez Polsky who uh, uh, had seen both of my shows and had been very fond of them. And uh, I've been collaborating with him since then. Oh, wow. on, his, on his solo work so I'll come and help him develop the script and I'll direct the performance and, and you know uh, and that's kind of been what's left me connected to uh, much of the theater in LA has been my connection to, to Joe and his efforts in the theater that's fantastic and um, so you going back to you saying that you're going to leave to teach preschool so you started teaching at Chubbuck Studios when did you start teaching there because that's how we met yeah, well, that's, I mean, 
Like how, she, long, how long have you been in LA so far? I moved to LA in April of 99. And, okay. and I started teaching for Ivana. Um, I, I'm gonna, I, I don't, I'm gonna say probably 2005, maybe 2008, even around there. So but I joined 2011. Yeah, January 2011. That's when I joined. That sounds that scans yeah. about right. But the, it's a misnomer. I didn't, you know, I'd been. I started teaching when I was 15 uh, at an arts program in Massachusetts called Charles River Creative Arts Program, um, uh -huh. and. Uh, I taught, I, I, I cut my teeth teaching eight to 15 year olds for a long time. And then when I got to New York, I started, um, I just sort of actors would, would come to me and, uh, um, and I would coach them on, on, on work that they were doing. And, and it, I had a pretty good capacity. And so, um, I had gotten to Ivana's, um, program following uh, at the recommendation of a dear friend Karina who uh, um, and and I was skeptical when I got there and and uh, but I had to admit that there was there was great utility that I hadn't quite anticipated to having a weekly place to to work mm -hmm. um, and after a couple of years there um, I told her that that uh, I thought I'd, I'd be able to teach for her and uh, she thought that that was a good idea, and, and I had to wait for about two years, I guess, for uh, uh, a class slot to open up. And then, and I think I, I taught at that program for about maybe seven years, I think. Wow, uh, it's it's really crazy though because I'll, I think I've had like three drama teachers, acting teachers. I've had several in my life, but there's three that definitely have stood out, and you're definitely one of the ones who I always like gravitate back towards. And the other two are in London, but I'm just like, as you know, there's one, sorry, there's one here in LA, two here in LA, one in London. Um, but you're definitely one of the ones who I just, there's something about you. Like, I remember the first class I had with you, I was just like, oh gosh, like there's, I don't know what it is, but the way you ran your classes, it felt like we were in an old timey New York, like theater group, like theater program. And it just felt like, I don't know how to describe it. But it just felt like super, like, you know, the old classic actors like Meryl Streep and Hoffman and all that stuff. It just felt like I was just like, oh, I feel like I'm in a class like that. You just have this like definite huge presence when you're teaching. And I think that's why I stayed in that program for so long, because you're just so like clear. And it's just when you're teaching, you're so articulate in what on how to get things out of your actors. And it just makes sense. Everything makes sense when you direct people. Well, that makes me very, very happy to hear. Thank you for saying that. You're welcome. Um, and I, it's it's to me, I I, I, I see teaching, acting uh, as part of my own process as an actor. Um, yeah. And, you know, I was having a conversation so I've been running uh, a small room of my own that I don't advertise, and I don't. It's it's not really a, a profit engine, but it's very important for my uh, soul and my yeah. emotional well-being. <laughs> and and it's it, it's it's also quite gratifying because the work that folks are doing in that room, um, you know, to my mind, it's it's 
as long as somebody's improving, um, then you're doing your job. Yeah. Like, I I think that that there's a there's a danger in the acting coaching profession of creating neediness in an actor, and I think that that is a terrible sin to make an actor needy um, because it 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 is. Uh, well, you're taking away their power. Well, you're taking away the, you're taking away their power. You're taking away their agency, but you create like a thing that that people don't quite understand, perhaps, or that that I've encountered that people don't quite understand. That you 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 think that uh, if you're if you're in a, a needy state of mind, which let's face it, when <laughs> you know you need this audition, you need this freaking job, you need health insurance, you need. I mean, it's hard not to be. Needed. in a needy kind of state of mind. It's really one of the big challenges. But the thing is, is you get, it. an actor can end up being really grateful. Oh, thank you so much for this opportunity. Thank you so much for this role. Thank you so much. Nobody's doing you an effing favor. You got the part, man. You got the part because you could help with the thing. Yeah. And so, if you, if you, so when an actor is in a sort of a needy state of mind or is trying to please be it a coach, be it a director, be it a whatever, where they, if, they, if, the, if the engine of their pursuit is praise or acknowledgement from, then, then you know, I don't, who wants to work with that? Yeah. The actor that shows up on set and says, um, I'll do whatever you tell me, they think that they're, they think that that might be the right tack to take. But the reality is, is that if a director hears, I'll do whatever you tell me, the director's like, well, why did I hire this guy? Yeah. I wanted to hire the guy that knew what to do with the fucking part. Yeah, there <laughs> <I swear. laughs> yeah. So it's like, you, it's, it's a very fine line. But I think that the thing, to my mind, like, so when I have, I've had guest artists come into my room and I've had, uh, I've had uh, when I've had work out of town, I've had substitutes come in as well. And usually they have their own enterprise. And the one thing that I ask of anybody who's coming into a room that I run is that whatever you're going to teach, it has to be durable. It has to, I want you to teach them something that they can, they can have and they can possess and it will belong to them. Because I think that there is, there is, if there's a downside in, in the, in the environment of, 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 coaching and I think there's a ton of downside I you know with I know that there's wonderful um, coaches that very sincerely believe in teaching cold reading I think I think it's a junk science personally I've oh, never yeah, seen, yeah I remember you. I've, I've never seen the value of it I don't mean to disparage somebody who could articulate the value but for me it's yeah. junk it's junk science um, similarly with on-camera training I think that there I think that if if you make the focus about how you relate to the lens, the lessons of on-camera training, um, I think you can create a very self-aware, very self-conscious, very inhibited performer, and that's not a that's not a good thing. Um, but largely, I think that the money is in creating a needy actor's valuable because. Mm -hmm. 
you know, oh, well, you don't know, I don't think you should stop taking class now because uh, you're just about to have a freaking breakthrough, whatever the hell that is. Oh, and, yeah. Yeah. and so it becomes sort of a profit motive. And I, and, I, and I think the profit motive in teaching is problematic. It's really interesting. I was having this phone in my uh, conversation with my friend in England. And so basically in England, you go to drama school for X amount of years, you do your classes, and there are places you can do like casting director workshops and stuff like you can do here. But when I was there, this was, I mean, I haven't been in London for 11 years. So I don't really remember there being like a place where you can go do scene study every week, like here, like in LA, they're just everywhere. And I was just saying to my friend, I'm just like, I found it really valuable. I was at Chubbuck Studios, I think I was with you for like a year and a half. And that time was just, it was so invaluable. It was just incredible. Um, but then they got to a point, I, it was, oh yeah, it was right after my father passed away. And then I was just like, you know what? I'm good. I just need a break. I just need to like focus on something else. Um, and because it was kind of getting that whole, like, you're almost there, you're almost there. It's just like, okay, well, I know I just, I just need to chill for a bit. But in England, they don't have that scene study class, like weekly session. And my friend was just like, oh, well, I don't think you really need it and blah, blah, blah. And I'm like, I kind of get it. I'm just like. I get what he's saying, but at the same time, I, for me, even though I just did a year and a half of scene study, I found that time just to be so valuable. Um, and obviously there are so many other classes here and you can do like improv and pole reading and on camera, like there's so much stuff, but I definitely found the weekly workout to be very, very worthwhile for that time that I did it. Um, but yeah, that does get to a point where you're just like, okay, it's time to, time to move on and like explore other things. Well, I also think that there can be, you know, there can be kind of a co-opting of the of an actor's ambition in in a in a in a school program, um, where you go from I want, you know, the goal that gets you to LA is you want to be a working actor, and then you and now you know now you want to be. Uh, in the, this night of a given comedy troupe or in this night of a given acting class or this. Mm-hmm. So now the, the drive, instead of it being, I want to be a working actor, the drive is now, I want to, I want to be a big part of this ecosystem. Yeah. And I, I think that the thing is, is it's, that's an ecosystem that means a great deal to a lot of people that are part of that ecosystem. But that's not the ecosystem you came to Los Angeles looking to be a part of. Like yeah. the ecosystem you want to be a part of is where where films are being made, where where uh, uh, TV is being made, where popular culture is is occurring. And uh, and I think you know I try to be very honest with with actors in training that no, that's not something I could teach you. You want to learn that? You got to get hired. I mean, you got to get hired. I, mm-hmm. Anybody? How are you going to teach? Uh, here's how you handle a day on set with 120 extras that you know you got to be in the middle of. What yeah. what, what class is going to prep you for that? How, here, how do you manage uh, uh, staying calm when a director has lost their mind in season seven <laughs> series because you know they're out of daylight? You know, these aren't things that can be taught. And so I think that the best thing that it, that uh, training can do is. What I, you know, the sort of mantra that I have now in, in my room is good taste and good habit, and uh, and I think if you if you if you focus on on uh, 
on your palate in terms of what sort of performance uh, excites you. And I think uh, my grandfather used to say, there's some very loud truck going by, but uh, my grandfather used to say that uh, uh, that which you admire, you can't help but emulate. And I, and I think the amount of actors that don't really digest old film or even current film, it always boggles my, my mind. It's yeah, kind I, of yeah. part of the job. Um, and I don't, it, there's, there's a glut of stuff out there, but you've got to get in the habit. If, if your goal is to work, uh, you have to get in the, you have to watch every pilot as far as I'm concerned, every year. So that at least you know the tone. You know the tone of what Dick Wolf is doing in Chicago. You know the tone of what Tyler Perry is doing in Atlanta. You know the tone of what Netflix is doing in L.A. You got it. You have to know because it's your job. That is your job, yeah. So speaking of like you have been basically when you came to L.A., you've been consistently working. You were on Six Feet Under, Gilmore Girls, Heroes, NCIS. You've done a bunch of TV shows. Parks and Rec, love that one. Um, but most recently, you did Agent Burley, Burley and Marvels, Ant-Man, Ant-Man and the Wasp. And I hadn't seen the first one. Now I have. And I think it's so good. <laughs> Peyton is a great director. <laughs> but I saw the second one in the cinema just to watch you because I was just like, I need to see Ben. And it was so good. <laughs> it was so good. <laughs> but just like going off a little bit, but like, you'd been here for such a long time and you've been doing the whole grind, doing the whole auditioning thing, like consistently working. Um, but then like this was a huge thing. And then you did the Belko experiment, James Gunn's Belko experiment, um, which I watched also because that, I think I watched that as soon as it came out too. And it's so, again, it's so good. Um, like what, how did it feel like to actually be part of those huge projects and like just knowing that you've been in LA for X amount of time and just like, like these are kind of huge deals to be like part of. It's, uh, I, I love, uh, I, I love the idea of uh, you going to see uh, Ant-Man and the Wasp to see Agent Burley. <laughs> but, uh, <laughs> Literally, that's the only, I said to Grant, I'm like, we have to go. And he's just like, why? We haven't seen the first one. I'm like, there's Ben's in it. <laughs> but so, so here's this. Here, given what the nature of this podcast, as you've explained it to me, is, this is a pretty valuable story. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, I've done, you know, I talk, I've got a lot of credits, and most of them are co-stars, right? It's a lot of big guy number two, it's a lot of Russian guy over there, it's a lot of, you know, and it's, and I say that not to... Um, diminish it because all of them were big deals to get. All of them contributed to um, me having a pension. Um, all of them contributed to me making relationships and learning valuable things that then I get to pass on to other actors. I mean, so there's a great value to all of it. None of it's particularly snazzy, though. I mean, it's not like I had one recurring role on a thing called Windfall back in the day, and uh, it just, you know, if the goal is you want to be a series regular, I, I'm not really, I didn't get close to that, at least at this point in my career, which is, is, you know, I think one of the great virtues of being an actor is 
you don't you don't know. I mean, Ruth Gordon's peak was in her late sixties, so it's like you yeah. don't know uh, what you don't know. But the but so I auditioned for a thing called Goodwin Games, which was a Fox pilot, and I booked it, and and. Uh, Shot with a great actor named Jake Lacey, who's who's doing very well. I'm, I'm pleased to say, or at least seems to be. And it, it, um, but he's a terrific guy, wonderful to work with. We had great chemistry, and the director was a guy named Peyton Reed, um, who was a terrific guy too. And it was one of those. It was just like there's, there's things that you learn that take time, and again, that you don't learn from a class. That mm -hmm. you you just you have to learn it over time. And, the, and my day on the set of Goodwin Games is when I, the, the sound guy, uh, and I don't know if it was the, the head sound guy or if it was one of the operators, um, but, he, but he tried to change my blocking because I had a lavalier on and me and Jake hugged in the middle of the scene. Um, and uh, I told him to pound sand. And uh, I said, you want me to change the director's blocking? You go tell the director, don't tell me. <laughs> And that's, and that's, I wasn't a jerk about it, but five years earlier, I wouldn't have known to do that. Yeah. And so that's kind of the wisdom and the sort of things that you start to learn the longer, the more time you spend on set and the more you understand these power dynamics, because power dynamics are all over the place on these sets. Like, mm -hmm. so, uh, we shot it, a bird crapped on me and Jake on one take, which apparently is extraordinarily good luck. It is. Um, and then, uh. My uh, my buddy Jimmy, who worked at Fox at the time, he saw the pilot ahead of anybody seeing it, and he told me, "Ben, it's the best thing I've ever seen you do. It is so funny. It's so good." And I was so excited. And then the and then they announced that Goodwin Games is getting picked up. And if you're in the pilot, even if you're a co-star in the pilot, you know all the co-stars in the in the first episode of Seinfeld came back for the final episode of Seinfeld. It's it's you know being in the pilot still means something. Yeah. Um, and then I find out from a friend's girlfriend, uh, who knows Jake Lacey, that he finds out at the upfronts that he's been cut. So he gets thrown out the, the, and recast, right? And so I'm like, great. So I'll never see this footage. I'll never see, the, it'll, I'll never see it. My bad luck, right? My bad luck. Eight months later, I think. My agent calls and says, you're working at Fox today or tomorrow. I'm like, on what? What did I audition for? She said, I don't know. I, I, let me check. <laughs> it's like Goodwin Games. And I'm like, really? <laughs> so I go back, and now T.J. Miller's been put into the role that was that Jake Lacey was playing. And, and I sort of knew T.J. a little bit from Friends. Um, and he's not he, – he is very fond of saying that he's not an actor, um, which I always makes me bristle if you're – on a set shooting a TV series. I'm sorry, <laughs> you're an actor. Um, but, but this was right, Lindsay, after I quit smoking, you know, my 20-year, two-and-a-half-pack-a-day habit. And, uh -huh. and, I'm on this, and Peyton's brought me back to play this dumb security guard again. Um, and it's an entirely different scene because TJ... Miller is just improvising the whole thing. And, and so I'm just straight man to him for this thing. But the, the thing that you learn when you're not a smoker anymore is that when you leave to go have a cigarette, the world continues without you. So <laughs> the fact that 
I wasn't leaving the set, man. I was hanging out with Peyton a lot more, and, and Peyton and I were sort of trying to figure out how to navigate what TJ was doing, and we got a lot of mutual respect for one another, and uh, and then that, and so we finished that day of shooting, and at the end of the day of shooting, we find out that the show's canceled. So, so, so they, so my bad luck again, right? Yeah. The show airs, and then that's it. And then a few years later, I'm at the gym and I get a phone call saying, your director's choice for a top secret thing. And I'm like, what? And it's this back and forth. It's a, a flurry of having to get foot, like I had to get the footage of Belko experiment to the people at, at Marvel to get approval for the thing. And But from that phone call to the following Monday, mm -hmm. I'm on set in Atlanta on, on a Marvel movie, and it's because of Peyton Reed. And it's because yeah. of that freaking show yeah. that I booked. You know, it's all of the, so it's this, it's, the longer you're at it, the more you understand that timing is essential. And, uh, but, but, but so this period though, Lindsay, I mean, it was just, it was just a remarkable moment because I had, uh, uh, I got hired for, right after I shot that Parks and Rec, I mm -hmm. went off to New York to start work, which I didn't know at the time was going to be five years of work uh, doing performance capture for Red Dead Redemption 2. That's what I was going to ask you to talk about next. Well, so that's, I was doing that. And while I was in process on that, I got yeah. the call to go do a table read at MGM and that ended up being Belko experiment. And, and that saw me in South America for 45 days. And then I had to go back and keep working on Red Dead and then, which I couldn't talk to anybody about because of the non-disclosure agreement. Oh, I remember there was a period of time when anytime we went out for drinks, you literally, I think it was the Belko and possibly Ant-Man and the Red Dead. I think you couldn't speak about any of them. So it's just like, well, this is a fun conversation. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, can't talk about it. Can't talk about it. Can't talk about it. Because <laughs> well, like, people call and they want to check in and they're like, how are you doing? Oh, I'm doing great. Well, what are you working on? Uh, uh, nothing. Nothing. <laughs> But it was, there was one year, one year where it was, we were really shooting Ant-Man and the Wasp, which I shot in uh, Atlanta and then in uh, San Francisco and, and doing Red Dead in undisclosed locations in New York. But I got to the end of that year and uh I, had, I think I'd done 70, I'd, been, I'd flown 75,000 miles and I hadn't left the U.S. <laughs> in a year. And, but the thing, I mean, the, the thing that really gives me, um, I don't know if it's pause or pride or, or really if it's just a function of, you know, speaking of what you were talking about at the beginning of, of pe people, you know, I'm going to come out to L.A. and give it six months. It's like, <laughs> okay, all right. You could, or, or here's another thing: don't bother. Yeah, <laughs> um, because it's it's not. No one invests in somebody who's there to see if they it's what they want to do. 
It's either yeah. what you do or it's what you don't. So again, it's like so you you list all these these sort of small roles, and then if I think about the five most productive years of my intersection with popular culture, um, and that's Red Dead Redemption Two, Belko Experiment, Ant Man and the Wasp, three very significant properties. And I didn't audition for any of them. And so just going back to, because you just said something about the, the small, like, co-star roles. Like, I just wonder, I know you said that they led to stuff that led to other things. But also, like, just being on a co-star, do you understand, like, I've been here 11 years and I'm like, give me a fucking co-star role. <laughs> They're so hard to get. So the fact that you've been on all these TV shows, like, however small, however big, like, whatever, it's fucking fantastic. Like, it's so, I just think just being an actor and just being on set and just, like, just having that experience as a whole, I'm just like, oh, my gosh, I can't, I can't wait. <laughs> so. But, it, 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 but it, it's it's so funny because it's, it's, you know, you got this idea of arrival, right? When am I going to arrive? Um, I don't feel like I've arrived anywhere. Uh, in fact, I've given up on because the thing is, is the because you I I I remember, gosh, if only I could get a freaking agent, or if only I could get in the freaking union, or if only I could get a a, a co-star, if only I could get a guest star, if only I could get top of show, if only I could get the moment you get the thing. Yeah, it's the next thing. It's the next thing, and but, so I had there's a wonderful actor um, that I worked with in, in Practicum. Uh, Max, um, I don't know if he's acting now, but he was in that position where he was quite um, frustrated that he hadn't gotten a co-star yet. And, uh, and you know, I run Practicum, it's a seminar, so everybody's invested in everybody. You're not there for your growth. There's no great advancement. Everybody's at different levels. We're all just there to, to, to train. And uh, and so Max books, I think it's the last ship. I think it's called. Um, but it's he's on a nuclear submarine. And he, oh, the TV show. Yeah. Yeah. The TV I had show. a friend on that. Yeah. So he's on some other submarine on the show, and he's you know he's there in the in the in the teaser, you know, before the credits, and they all die, right? But so it's a day on set. He's, in the makeup chair, he's dealing with extras, he's dealing with, you know, all the things that you deal with a day on set, which is like the greatest freaking day. And, uh, and uh, he comes back to practicum a week after he shot it, and I ask him the question, do you feel more like an actor now than you did two weeks ago? And he thought about it, and he said, no. And I said, that's good, that's appropriate. What you get hired to do is not what makes you an actor. Yeah. Um, and there are a lot of people that have very bad misconceptions about that. Um, that that unless like an out of work actor is not an actor. Bullshit. Mm -hmm. Bullshit. Uh, a never having worked on a major project is not an actor. That's also bullshit. Um, they're acting. Acting. There's. Now you could be disappointed. You could be a disappointed actor, but if you are an actor, you will find a way to act. And and I don't look down my nose at any form of acting. 
um, except maybe uh, people that are focused their entire careers on being extras. But even there, I've got friends that have done that, and they did that as a calculation, and they just they didn't really care about getting particularly good at acting, but they loved being on sets. Yeah. So, I mean, I, I, I don't know, but it is, uh, it is, it is a, tr it's a truth that no matter how big the project is, on the, it's all, it's always just a gig. Yeah. It's just a gig, and it's going to go away, and it's going to go up on the shelf, and you're going to return to what's next. And no matter how many things you've done, you're going to also return to, will I ever work again? Is this it for me? Am I done? All the sort of dark refrains that every actor is familiar with that goes through all of their heads. It goes through everybody's head. I, I got reached out to by a, a wonderful actress who's done, who's got great renown, and she reached out to ask... Um, about whether or not I ever felt insecure. <laughs> and, and her concern that she maybe peaked, which is, you know, no one can predict the future. Anybody who says that they can is selling something. But this idea, she'd been part of something that was so big that I think she sort of felt like everything after that had to be equally big, which is crazy because, you know, you don't know. You just don't know. Like, I remember during downtime on Belko Experiment, uh, I ended up sitting next to Tony Goldwyn, who is the, an actor's actor, uh, mm -hmm. a magnificent guy to be around. And just like the guy is, you know, he closes down the bar. He's the first guy at the gym. He's 100% on his lines. He knows oh, what he's that, fantastic. Yeah. He, the guy is, uh, he's sickening how competent and excellent he is. Um, uh damn him and <laughs> but i just i remember asking him if they knew while they were working on ghost uh what a big deal it was going to be and he's like he looked at me he's like you never know you just never know and i believe i believe that i mean the one time i feel like i knew was red dead redemption too i knew i didn't know on red dead redemption but on red, red dead redemption too the people i was working with the, the focus that they had, the excitement that they had, the, the quality of the material that I was getting to work with oh, for year in and year out, I knew I knew that we were doing something very special. And that's uncommon that you know that. Yeah, that was definitely something to be, that's like a special thing to be part of. It's, it's you know, it's funny because it sort of brings me back to Sweeney Todd. Like, I, Dutch Vanderland, the guy I got to play in, in, in two Red Dead games now, I mean, that's my Sweeney Todd. That's, and and my greatest hope, it's going to bring me to tears because I've never even thought of this before. I have not thought of this before, but my greatest hope would be that there is a nine-year-old kid somewhere uh, who's going to want to be an actor because of that work. Yeah. That would make me very happy. Oh. Oh, Ben. <laughs> you know, maybe God. <laughs> well, because I can see your video of Dissect Club. <laughs>
You're not recording the video though, right? No, I'm I'm not, it's, it's just very uh, audio. <laughs> oh, <yeah. laughs> <laughs> oh my gosh, Ben, I absolutely adore you. You're one of my favorite people. I know we haven't seen each other in ages, but you know, COVID and all that stuff. Oh gosh. It's like, um, are you drinking it? I'm drinking the same LaCroix as you. I'm drinking a peach pear LaCroix. Um, I've been I'm quite, quite the connoisseur of LaCroix in the, uh, in the pandemic. And the uh, grapefruit, the pompamoose. Oh, the pompamoose. <laughs> yeah. Very good. I, I, I think I'll get the one next. Tangerine is a good one if you haven't tried that. I have tried that. I think the only one that I don't like is the coconut one. Oh no, I haven't, like I haven't dared. Is, is the coconut one coming the little, like they've got the little tiny No, the ones? fancy ones. Um, it comes in a normal can. It's like a white color can. But the, the small ones, they're fancy. They're like cherry and cucumber. Oh, they're so good. No, I have like kiwi strawberry, I think, or kiwi watermelon. I had that. But uh, I feel like it's a jip. I feel like I'm getting overcharged for those. You are. You absolutely are. But the... <laughs> definitely worth it <laughs> it's better than sodas so there you go oh, dear. Oh, well ben thank you so much this has been very insightful and you're just always a pleasure to talk to and hang out with and well thank you I, it's it's it, you took me down roads i hadn't walked in a long time so i'm i'm very glad i got to uh and I, i'm i'm always here uh, to support you in all of your efforts, gladly. Um, so I'm delighted to be to be able to be a part of it. Well, I appreciate that. And uh, once all of this is over and we can actually go to bars again. <laughs> oh my God! Yes. Although we'll never, we'll never go to the Pikey again. It's gone. It's gone. Gone. Oh my God. Yeah. Oh my God, that's really. Uh... Uh, it's you know. Time marches on. Oh, and it closed because of COVID? It closed a week into the first shutdown. They were they were in trouble. Oh, um, I had no idea. I, they were always busy every time I went there. Uh, yeah, they, they had been in decline for a couple of years towards the end. And, and then uh, oh. they just shuttered. So I, I expect, you know, there's been a bar at that location since 40 five gotcha so unless they tear down the whole property i expect another bar will go in that spot well that's a shame because you had your spot at the table and everything at the bar i know it i know it but you know times change times you gotta change. change with them and maybe you'll find someplace better ah <sighs> yeah all right all right my darling well i will uh, let you know it's great to hear your voice and it yeah. was much fun to be a part of this. And thank you once again, Benjamin Byron Davis, for coming on the show. You can follow him on Twitter at Toto, and you can follow me on Twitter at Duchess Lindsay. And we will see you next week with another edition of Tea Time with Linz. See you then. <laughs>